Good morning. Good to see everybody here on this um, spectacular Sunday morning in Lent. I have uh, occasionally thought that on uh, weekends like this, during spring break, I could make a good case that I would I would be serving more people from Christ Church if I went to Naples, Florida, and we held a service than if I stayed in Chicago. But with weather like we've been having, why go to Naples, Florida? This is the place to be, so um, good to have all of you here. From time to time, uh, you hear the results of a survey announced, and somebody, usually in fairly ominous tones, says, um, according to a recent study, 85% of high school seniors cannot name more than five of the 50 states or don't know how many sides there are in a triangle, uh, right? Or um, uh, they think that the Civil War was a game show that played during the 80s and everybody just uh, wrings their hand and says, I can't believe it. What is the world coming to? Back in my day, we knew how many sides were in a triangle. We knew how many sides were in a, you know, a a hectapalon. We knew everything there was. Well, from time to time, there are other results that get announced. And you hear a survey that says, according to recent studies, uh, only 82% of third graders can name all of Shakespeare's plays or Only uh, 79% can uh, figure out the square root of 2,458,715 in their head. And uh, only 56% could name all of President Lincoln's cabinet. And and, uh, you hear this and you're thinking, all of Shakespeare's plays. Let's see, there's um, Hamlet and there's uh, Hamlet. And I think he wrote more than one. Uh, And then you go to square roots and you go, um, square root of 16 is four. I think that's as high as I go. And, uh, but, but the, the chorus around you is you can't, I can't believe what they don't know today. And you jump in going, I can't believe what they don't know today. Praying all the while that no one asked you to name one member of uh, Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. So I have good news for you today in light of that. The good news is this. Sometimes um, it's not what we don't know that we need to worry about. It's simply what we know but are not applying. We have been in this uh, study of Philippians chapter 4. and the, the last two messages on verse 8, we were thinking about thinking. And I argued that we are expected to think. That uh, our thoughts matter to God, our thoughts matter to us, uh, that we need to be more vigilant in thinking today because our culture is in decline. We are not thinking particularly clearly any longer. And that the goal is not simply to be good thinkers. The goal is not simply to have a big mind, if you will. It's also to have a big heart. Well, I want to I leverage that as we continue with Paul's argument because he moves forward now in verse 9 to make this case that we need to apply what we know. This is a call to an action. This is the, the, the Nike verse, just do it, that Paul sets in front of us. Let me read this passage in context. I'll begin with Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and read through verse 9. Philippians 4, 
4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. It's not enough to know. It's not enough to understand. It's not enough to learn deep, profound truths about God. It's it's not enough to collect good thoughts. We need to act on them. And we are not particularly good at doing that. If, uh, if application were a vitamin, we would have a vitamin A deficiency. And I say this not just sort of generically. I say this uh, in large part based on the results that recently came back uh, from this reveal survey that, uh, that we took. You may remember at the beginning of the year... I uh, appealed to you to go online and to take this, uh, this spiritual assessment. Uh, there was a questions. It took about a half hour, 20, 25 minutes. It asked a lot of questions about uh, your life, uh, your, your spiritual practices, about the church, about those kinds of things. And, uh, and hundreds of you did. Uh, and then the, the data was collected and it was analyzed uh, and compared against the uh, hundreds of thousands of people at hundreds and thousands of churches that have taken this uh, spiritual assessment. And then we got a 50-page report that was uh, sent out to us saying, here's where uh, you stand. And, and even beyond that, we're very fortunate in that uh, the, the person who was instrumental in designing this assessment, uh, which is used all over the world, lives, this person lives in Lake Forest. So I called him up and I said, we have our results, would you please uh, help me understand them? And so we had uh, uh, an hour and a half together, and at the end of that time I said, this is very helpful, would you come back and would you, would you present to the staff and the elders and the deacons, because we all need to, we all need to hear this. And he did. And uh, as you might imagine, the, the, the results of, of that, I mean, 50 pages of data, it sort of uh, falls out into a handful of different categories. For starters, there's the, wow, you guys should be really encouraged about all of this. So there's lots of people who are serving uh, inside and outside the church. And there's lots of people who report that they are growing in their, uh, their relationship with God. And there are lots of people uh, who are reading their Bible every day. And you've got a high percentage of people who are in small groups. And, and so we, you know, had a number of, of uh, things that you go, this is really, this is really good. You should be encouraged about this. Then there was another um, uh, 
column, we'll call it, where they said, this is interesting. And uh, among the things that were interesting, for instance, was the fact that zero percent, zero people said that they were personally satisfied with their efforts, their own efforts, to, to love God and serve others. He goes, zero percent. I've not seen zero percent. He goes, that's very interesting. You should probably be encouraged by that. And I thought, hmm, I think that's just the North Shore. That's just a bunch of overachievers. Uh, I only got an A. I wanted an A+. Not happy. Try harder. Then there was the, uh, oh, this is bad column. There were two things in which we were uh, sort of off the charts low in. Giving and evangelism. The percentage of people who give and the percent given was very low. And anything to do with trying to lead other people to faith was desperately low. Having a spiritual conversation with neighbors and friends and workers, inviting someone to an event, inviting someone to church, we're we're in last. Now, this was not necessarily new news. Uh, We were quite aware of uh, our shortcomings in these two categories. If everybody at Christ Church was on welfare and gave at, at sort of biblical levels of giving, our budget would go up substantially. So we are aware that giving is low. And we're also aware that we don't see... uh, When people come into the church, often they say, I was driving by and it's a gorgeous building. I mean, we ask them and we just don't hear. Oh, well, guy at work has been trying to get me into a Bible study for the last six months. I finally relented. We don't hear that. So... No surprises there. Uh, it's disappointment because we love to think we're making progress and we spend a lot of time in those areas, but no surprises. Then there was a fourth category. And, and this category, he said, you probably should be aware of this. One thing that he said is you have a lot of people who report that they are in a vital, growing, dynamic relationship with Christ. This is all self-reporting, right? You have a lot of people who say they are, have a vital, growing, dynamic relationship with Christ. But when we look at the way they respond to the things that you would expect would roll out of that, we don't see those things. So you have a lot of people who say, I'm here. If we were going to grade them, we would grade them much lower. And he said, you have a good number of people, almost all of them, who have been at the church for eight, ten years or more, who have stalled. They're not growing. Okay, well, that's all pretty sobering stuff to hear. And I will take it as a little bit of a divine appointment that on the, the, during the week that I am writing a message on Philippians 4.9, which says, in essence, get into the game, do it, don't audit the faith, that I'm handed data that says, 
Wow, you're at a church where a good number of people are auditing the faith. So, let's unpack that for just a second. Three points I'd like to make this morning. Number one, knowing is not enough. Knowing is not enough. Jesus makes this point in a handful of different ways. In Luke chapter 11, shortly after he has healed a man who um, has been uh, unable to speak, a woman from the crowd calls out and says, uh, Blessed is the mother who gave birth and nursed you. And Jesus responds saying, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Not blessed are those who hear the word of God and understand it, or blessed are those who hear the word of God and like it and decide to come back for more, or blessed are those who hear the word of God and reduce it down to pithy little statements that they put on bumper stickers and t-shirts and coffee mugs and keychains. But blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey. In John 13, he says essentially the same thing to the disciples. He's just washed their feet and given this most profound leadership lesson. And he then says to them in John 13, he says, Now that you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now that you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then we see over and over he goes to the Pharisees, who are the most well-read men in society. And he asks them, have you not read? I mean, it's it's a rhetorical question. Have you not read? Have you not heard? And then he lists some point. Well, of course they've read, right? In order to be a Pharisee, most of these would have memorized the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament. Some of them can tell you what the, the exact middle word is in, in uh, the book of Psalms. I mean, they sort of know this thing backwards and forwards. So this question is quite rhetorical. Have you not read? Of course they've read. But Jesus doesn't see in their life the kind of thing that he would like to see. And so he asks... Don't you know this? I don't see it in your life. So, point number one. There's a reoccurring theme in Scripture that knowledge in and of itself is not enough. The goal is not right thinking for right thinking's sake. It's right thinking that leads to right living, right actions. It's not what we know It's what we do. In the end, it's not our IQ or even our EQ. It is our AQ, that is our application quotient. Point number two. Good intentions are not enough. We can go a step beyond saying that knowledge is not enough to say that knowledge and good intentions are not enough. Uh, Five frogs are sitting on a log. Three decide to jump. How many frogs are sitting on the log. Some of you have heard this before. Others are going, I'm sure it's a trick question because it's not as simple as saying five minus three is two, but 
Five frogs are sitting on the log. Three decide to jump. How many frogs are still sitting on the log? Five. Because there's a difference between deciding to do something and actually doing it. Good intentions don't necessarily get you anywhere. Good intentions and a few dollars will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. In 1 Samuel 15, we see this uh, truth developed uh, in a pretty powerful way. 1 Samuel 15 picks up shortly after Samuel, the prophet, has anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel. So Israel is coming out of the, the period of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They decided that they wanted uh, to stop existing in this loose confederacy of tribes. They wanted a king like everybody else had a king. And, and God and Samuel have pointed out, if you have a king, you're going to have taxes. You're going to have, you know, the king is going to take things from you. You don't want a king. Plus, you have a king. Right? God is king. But they want a king they can see. And so God gives them exactly what they ask for. Saul is right out of central casting for a king. He's tall, he's young, he's good looking, and uh, they're excited. And, the, and Samuel anoints Saul to be king, and then he gives him his marching orders. He says, you've got to go stop the Amalekites. You've got to raise up an army. You've got to go stop the Amalekites. But do not, do not, do not take any spoils from them. So Saul raises up an army, and off they go, and they are successful in stopping the Amalekites. I'm going to read now 1 Kings chapter 15. Uh, verse 9 is saying that, uh, that Saul and the army did spare the best of the sheep, cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs. Everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy, but everything that was despised and weak, they, they didn't take that. They didn't have any interest in that. And then verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor, and he has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them. Okay, so trouble already because uh, we're shifting the blame. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And then Samuel relates to Saul how uh, God had lifted Samuel, lifted Saul out of obscurity. He had made him king. And he had given him very clear directives on what to do and how Saul had disobeyed. And Saul protests and said, no, we've only kept these things. We only took these things so that we can offer a sacrifice. To which Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. Obedience is better than sacrifice. This is a line that is repeated throughout the Old Testament. It's a reoccurring phrase. God wants us to obey. We can go one step further. Understanding or knowing is not enough. Knowing and good intentions are also not enough. There is a third point, and that is believing in God is not enough. Please listen carefully here because I am going to walk perilously close to heresy for a while in order to make this point. In 1 John chapter 2, John writes, beginning with verse 3, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word... God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. John wrote this first letter, 1 John, um, in part to address a a heresy known as Gnosticism. The the Gnostics believed a lot of uh, screwy things, and there was a lot of different sort of strains of Gnosticism, but one of the central tenets of their faith was that we are reconciled to God. We are made right. We, are, we, we get into the family through secret knowledge, okay? through knowing stuff that, uh, that other people don't know. Like many people in the first century, this, this group was heavily influenced by Greek thinking. And the Greeks, since Plato, had this idea that the physical world was bad, right? Plato said that what's, what's good, what's perfect is all spiritual and it exists up in the heavens. It, the, the perfect archetype is up there. And what we see and experience down here is broken and it's physical, it's less, it's second or third best at best. And so in light of that, uh, first of all, the, the Gnostics uh, didn't believe that, that Jesus was a man. Okay? They believed he was God. Now, today, lots of people will grant that Jesus, uh, that Jesus was a man, but they don't believe that he was God. The Gnostics believed that Jesus was God, but not that he was man. Okay? Why would God come down to the physical world? They, they, they disavowed the incarnation, which, of course, is pivotal to our salvation. We are reconciled to God by the God-man, who as man can represent us, and whose death is sufficient to pay the sins of all of us because he's God. Well, they denied that, and they had this idea, no, we're, we're saved through secret information. Now, in light of this, uh, some of the Gnostics... Uh, were ascetics. They, they punished their body. They, they starved themselves. They slept on a cold floor. They did, they did what they could to try and beat down their body so that it would be less and that their soul could become stronger and higher. 
Some of the Gnostics went the exact opposite direction. And they said, hey, what's physical is unimportant. It's, it doesn't matter. So do whatever you want. Eat, sleep, and be merry. You know, sleep around. Do whatever. Because the physical body, it just is not significant. Okay? So I, I, I share this. Because although there are not many card-carrying Gnostics today, a few, this thinking has polluted the church in some tragic ways. There are, there are people who have some Gnostic thought behind them. I had a fraternity brother who, when I was sharing the gospel with him, this was back in college, he said... Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm in. I'm good. I believe. I prayed the prayer. I'm there. Now, he goes, don't expect me to start showing up at the Bible study that uh, the house has or to go to church or any of that. I'm young. I intend to have lots of fun in college. But, uh, but I'm, in. I'm in. I'm in the club. Don't worry, right? I know the secret password. I got the handshake because I, I prayed the prayer. Now, <clears throat> that... Attitude, few people express it quite that blatantly today. But there is that attitude that, that says, you know, Jesus is my Savior. But I, I'm, he's not always my Lord. Right? He's, I'm in, but I'd rather sort of head down the path that I think is best. There are books written on whether or not you can make Jesus your Savior but not have him as Lord. Now, in fairness, it's worth pointing out this is not the biggest problem that we have in the church today. If you were going to ask me what the biggest problem that we would have in the church today, I would say there's still lots of people who believe that in the end, they're saved by their good works. I'm doing more good than bad, so when I die, I go up, not down. I'm, I'm, I'm going to church, I'm getting, I'm getting credit, and I'm trying to do these things so that I get credit, so that God is for me. Men and women, that's, that is not the gospel at all. The gospel is not that we reach up to God. The gospel is that God reached down to us. That God became man in Jesus. And that he died on the cross for us. And when we place our faith in Christ, when, when we make him our Savior and Lord, when we repent of our sins and say, I want to follow you, we step over that line. And, and our sin is transferred to Christ his righteousness is, is transferred, is credited to our account. Theologically, we say it's, Im, it's imputed to us. And at that moment, we are justified by faith. And, and we, we are adopted into the family of God. We become children of God. We're born again. What, whatever metaphor you want to use. That, that is what it means to be a Christ follower. There's many people who... who Miss at the most basic level. But 
there are others that move into a category that says, yeah, I did all that, but I'm not particularly interested in um, doing all the things that you think I ought to do because of that. I, I want in, but I still want to chart my course. And that is why I would say, believing in God is not enough. It's not enough if that's how your belief is being manifest. Because while it is wrong to say that faith plus works equals salvation... We do not contribute to our salvation. So it is wrong to say faith plus good works leads to our salvation. It is also wrong to say faith equals salvation. The equation would be faith equals salvation plus works. The works are not done to earn God's favor, but the, but the works are done out of a heart that suddenly realizes what has been done for them. And it's done, it's, it's done out of joy. And it's, it's not to suggest that it's easy. It's not to suggest that we never get it wrong. We almost always get it wrong. Right? We, Paul writes about this himself in Romans. Uh, he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am. I'm not suggesting that we become perfect. We do not. But we are expected to be trying. We're expected to be moving in that direction. And we're expected to be broken when we sinfully choose to head down another path. And to repent and to move forward again. We do not contribute to our justification... That is all Christ's work. But we are expected to work out our salvation. We are expected to contribute to our sanctification. Believing in God is not enough. We are expected to believe God. And that belief translates into action. There's, uh, There's a lot more that would be worth unpacking in this passage if we had longer. I've got a quote at the beginning of your worship folder by J.I. Packer. He's one of many who, who argue that knowledge about God is so profound that if we don't apply it, it tends to become intoxicating and can lead us down, get us in trouble. Additionally, um, there's some interesting things that suggest that just as thinking leads to action, that action can lead to thinking. Plato, or excuse me, Aristotle writes about this in Ethics. He says, how do you become a builder? You build. How do you become a writer? You write. How do you become brave? You act bravely. And I mean that, that the actions will actually help begin to mold our thinking. Additionally, I would be remiss if I did not point out to you that Paul appeals to people to do what he's doing. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or 
seen in me, put it into practice. If, if we've been a Christ follower for any length of time, we ought to be able to say to somebody that we are looking who's new to faith, that we have been involved in sharing the gospel with, that is now a new Christian, follow me. You want to know what the Christian life looks like? Do what I do. Now, most of us are horrified at that thought, but that's what Paul says. And Paul's an apostle, and we're not. I get that. But there is a sense in which we should be doing the right thing and modeling what that looks like. There's more here. I'm going to end with a story about a friend of mine and a a profound observation that he made. This was a number of years ago. Friend, uh, his name is Eric, is a successful business leader. Uh, Prestigious undergraduate and and graduate level degrees. You know, five years on Wall Street at one of the very top uh, investment banking companies. I met him when he was in his uh, 30s, and he was uh, the president of a, of a significant company, and he was on corporate boards for several other companies. If he was not making tens of millions of dollars at that point, he was at least making millions of dollars at that point. And I found uh, Eric to be a very interesting guy uh, because of the way he thought. And he would think a lot about thinking, and he played a lot of chess uh, because he was always trying to understand strategy better. And I also was interested, I found, it, I found him an interesting person because of how quickly he acted on information. And then one day he said this. <clears throat> he said, you know, when I pick up the Wall Street Journal in the morning and I read it, if uh, I read that company X, Y, and Z is doing, doing something, I pick up the phone and call my broker and say, bye. Or sell. You know, when I get information, I act on it. And I act quickly. And he goes, I, I do that realizing that my analysis of the situation may not be right. But I believe, generally, that you act on information. He says, but when I pick up this book and I read it, I don't always act on it. He says, remarkably... When I read this book, when I read the words of Christ, I believe it's true. I say I believe that it's true. It's not a matter of whether or not my analysis is right or not. I believe it's true. But I don't act. See, something is wrong with that. Right. Something's wrong. It's not enough to know. It's not enough to have good intentions. It's not enough to to believe in God. We are to believe God, and that is to shape how we live. Please hear me here. I am not interested in putting you under an oppressive, legalistic, go-churn-it-out march to try and be a better person. That's not what we get called to. And as a matter of fact, that's not what Paul says. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is a path towards liberation. Our sanctification ultimately is not anything we can engineer. We cannot make ourselves better. 
That is also going to be a result of the grace of God in our lives. But we are called to to lean in that direction. We are called to do what we can. We are called to discipline ourselves and to press on. And so with an understanding of God's love and mercy and grace and the opportunity to start over a thousand times, we just keep trying to move in that direction. Knowledge is not enough. Good intentions are not enough. Believing in God is not enough. Believing God that leads to action is what we're called to. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, we, uh, we confess that we are quite selective in what we apply. And it would be our prayer that we would be uh, those who don't just believe in, but who believe and who yield their lives to you and believe that the right path is the path that you call us down. May we see that more clearly. May we see your call more um, clearly and press on towards the goal. Father, I pray nobody leaves here under a, a weight of legalistic, worked-imposed expectations that your love, your grace, your mercy for them, extended to them, would be very clear. But it would be with, with some joy and an understanding that your word is a path to freedom that we would seek evermore to apply what we learn. In Christ's name, amen.